Welcome to the Saints and Scholars podcast. Today we're joined by Dr. Bruce Ritchie. Uh, Dr. Ritchie talked to us in part one about the setting and the life of Columba. If you haven't listened to it already, please go back and listen to that first. Today he picks up the subject again, talking about the impact that Columba had and the theology that really drove the man. I hope you enjoy hearing more about this painting scene of the Bible. Well, we were really thankful last week about uh, how clearly you laid out for us the setting that Columba uh, lived in and really unfolded uh, his life, including that exciting adventure with Nessie. Maybe we can just pick up uh, from there and talk a little bit more about his uh, impact in Scotland and Ireland and the theology that really drove the man. Maybe you could unfold for us then the impact that Columba had on Scotland. I, th- I think we can think of the impact in, in, in several ways. There was an ecclesiastical or a, a missional impact. He certainly helped to consolidate Christian presence, especially across the highlands and the islands. Now, there were other Irish monks who came to Scotland who also did the same kind of work. But firstly, they didn't have the same biographer as Columba did. And and secondly, although they were quite impactful, they probably weren't quite as impactful as what Columba was. So so his work in doing that or in sending people out to do that was quite significant from an ecclesiastical, from a missional um, point of view. He also made um, a cultural impact I mean, obviously, he and others from the north of Ireland brought across the Irish language, which then became the Gaelic language for for, for Scotland, and also brought learning, brought literacy, brought art. And these, of course, all became very powerful um, ingredients for the cultural life of Scotland afterwards. And then you could also say that there's a political impact. And this is something which is really being looked at more today Uh, by secular historians. Because one of the suggestions is that the the kind of missions that came from Iona and and other places as well, that they brought that mission and they brought Christianity and that Christianity then became a uniting factor for all the disparate tribes and they began to see themselves as one people, giving rise to the notion that Scotland itself was a nation rather than just a sort of group of different people in different parts of the country. So that particular thesis is one that's sort of gaining in popularity today, that the, the, the missionary work, the ecclesiastical work, the cultural impact actually resulted in a sense of Scottish identity um, as one of the sort of long-term um, outputs of that. What about then his influence on the Irish church? After he goes to Iona, one of the things I found quite interesting to read about was there. there is still so much movement back and forward. What sort of impact did he have then on the Irish church moving forward? I'm, I'm, I'm not sure we could say that Columba was directly involved in moving the Irish church or the church in Ireland um, forward. Um, I mean, there were contemporaries of his who trained alongside him, um, for example, based at Bangor and so on, who had a much stronger 
impact on Ireland itself, on, on, on the church and the faith in Ireland. But you're quite right. He went back and forward, um, which you know, sort of undermines again the sort, of, the sort of myth that he left Ireland never to see it again, which um, when we read a Domnan, we know it is, is, isn't true at all. Um, I think one of the main things he was involved in was when he went with the King of Dalriata, King Aidan, to the Convention of Drumchet. Um, and that convention really began the process of splitting Scottish Dalriata from Irish Dalriata. Uh, because beforehand they'd been seen basically as two units of the one country. And then after that, they went their separate ways. So in a sense, you could say that because he was involved in that, then he was also a sort of figure who who, who influenced that particular um, development of, of Irish identity and, and Scottish identity. But after he left Ireland, it was really other figures in Ireland who guided the Irish church um, and, 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 and Columbus' impact was much more to the east of Ireland than the north of Ireland, yeah. Very good. Well, one of the aspects of your book that I think is most particularly helpful is you you really work hard to unfold the theology that drove the man. You know these characters in church history they didn't operate in a you know in a spur of the moment. They had a theology that drove their action. And one of the things that you highlight in the book that I think is most helpful is you talk a lot about that kind of spiritual warfare understanding. Maybe you could explain to us uh, what that meant uh, to Columba and how did that shape his mission? Yeah, and and Andrew, this was one of the things which, you know, when I was um, researching the book was something which I genuinely learned new and which I discovered new. And once you got it, you began to see all the connections, you know. When Columba and, and, and his fellow monks um, trained, went through a monastic system and trained as, as deacons and priests and so on, the, the theological education they got was the same theological education any monk would get anywhere in Christendom. You know, whether it was a monk in the deserts of the, the Middle East, in, in north of Egypt, in, in Greece, in Italy, anywhere. They, they, they basically the same theological syllabus and they read the same books um, of the early fathers. And, and, and the worship and the liturgy of the Irish church borrowed from the whole of Christendom. It was an amalgam um, from different places brought by traders and missionaries and so on. So there was that tremendous interconnectedness. And one of the things that comes out in Irish Christianity as well as general um, Christianity of that point was the emphasis on understanding the work of Christ, the redemption, salvation, in terms of victory over Satan. And, and the mindset was that the problem humanity has is that Satan exercises an usurped authority over the earth, over men and women, over communities. And therefore, salvation consists in individuals, communities being set free. And so, for example, the Exodus motif becomes very strong in, in liturgy, in hymns, in, in preaching, in prayers, and so on. 
So Satan's grip on us needs to be broken. Christ on the cross breaks that grip. How is it applied to us? It's applied when Christ is proclaimed, exalted, lifted up. And in the truth being lifted up, Satan is put to flight. And so in a sense, the power of evangelism lies not so much in arguments. You know, nowadays in apologetics, we try and find arguments for various things. But the power of evangelism lies in heralding Christ and heralding the true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And basically, they're almost as if they're saying, when you name the name and, and when you proclaim the truth, then that proclamation and that naming puts Satan to flight and anybody who does that, his grip over them is released and they're set free. Just like the people of Israel were set free from the bondage of, of, of Pharaoh. And they're then on the way to ultimate redemption. And, and that is the mindset that pervaded the whole of Christendom um, at that time. Release from Satan, from the power of Satan. Yeah. So, so if we try and put feet on that to help, um, again, people not to miss that point, because I think that's such a helpful one to, to grasp. You know, Columba in his evangelism and his mission, he's not trying to outsmart the picks. What is he doing in order to evangelize? What is what? What's how does that look in terms of his proclaiming? Well. The, the Christians at that time, and you can go right through from um, the Greek fathers like Athanasius and so on, and, and you see this all the way through, um, took very seriously the statement in Ephesians chapter 2 that talked to the prince of the powers of the air, and that basically we are surrounded by demonic forces. And so wherever you go, demonic forces are surrounding you. And, and the Christians of the time thought very much in terms of a location, and the location is the air between earth and heaven. And, and so, for example, when somebody dies, the, 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 they're then in peril because they have to transition between earth and heaven. And, and so that last part of the journey become, becomes quite perilous, and there's all kinds of theology developed to try and deal with that. And also you have the high crosses in Ireland and you have the high crosses in Scotland. And these, I think, although more research needs to be done on this, this is symbolic of Christ being raised up into the air in order to conflict and to have warfare with the powers that supposedly rule in that particular region. Now, proclamation is lifting up Christ spiritually in the same way that you might lift something up physically into the air. So, for example, when Columba would go to somewhere, say King Brood's fortress near Inverness, then he would simply try and proclaim who Christ is. He would, he'd want to herald the truth. He'd want to speak the true name of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And by Christ, by the truth, by the holiness of God being lifted up, into the very atmosphere around him, battle takes place and the demonic has to flee. And when an individual is prepared to confess the name of the true God, 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit, then the demonic hold over their life is broken and they are now free. So they confess with their lips and they are set free. It's Sometimes you have these little reminders of the past and there may be aspects of the theology that we you know, we would not embrace holy, but 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 there's a good uh, awakening that it brings in us too. That that idea of the power of the gospel, and the confidence not in the wisdom of man, but in what is preached to bring about its effect. I think I think that's such a helpful thing. What what, what about uh, Columbus' view of uh, judgment and the reality of heaven and hell? in the past that used to be a especially a huge motivation for mission and evangelism was was that true of columbus time as well yeah there's 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 very few documents we can go to which we can say columba wrote this um you know for example you can buy lovely books of prayers and so on and you might have quite a number saying this was by columba or this was by so and so and that may be the case but we don't know but one thing that scholars are pretty confident in is that the, the long poem, The Artist Prosator, was written by Columba. And it virtually opens with the statement that nobody doubts that there is a heaven above and a hell below. Um, you know, so for Columba and for all the saints of that time, the biblical teaching on the, the awfulness, the awful reality of hell was just taken for granted. That was assumed. Now, some modern Celtic Christians, of course, downplay this because it doesn't fit into a sort of 21st um, century view of things. Um, and, and so that, again, is one of the sort of stress points between 21st century Celtic culture and Columbus Celtic culture, if we're going to use that um, particular um, example there. Yeah. But... The great weakness, and, and, and we might be coming on to this later on, um, the great weakness in, 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 in Columbus' thinking, which was widespread across Christendom at that time, was the fact that in order, having been released from Satan's grip, having been redeemed by Christ, having been set on the exodus road towards the promised land, you might not get there unless you're good enough. So it's almost like a second chance theology, but you might fall along the way like the Israelites fell along the way. Yeah. And of course, this is related to the Augustine Pelagian debates and so on. Um, and, and so this would be one of the sad marks of Columbus faith, but he shared it with others that there was this sort of worry at the back of it, that even having been, released from the power of Satan, you might be recaptured. Yeah. You, you might be recaptured. Um, and that's something that obviously one would not want to take into a, a fully biblical understanding of the, of the gospel. I was going to say, it's one of those wonderful things that we have a, a legacy of, uh, you know, 2,000 years of church development, you know, that... Uh, those things have been debated and thought through and you know there's a chain of building clarity that comes through church history what would you say to to columba uh 1500 years ago if you could uh, jump back 
in the time machine. What would you want to say to him about that few that uh, took to correct it, given the, you know, the the debates and development that has come since? Yeah, I mean, I think we we just want to put our hand on his shoulder and say, "Brother, you're saved by God's grace alone through Christ alone," um, and 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 get rid of this dark thing on your other shoulder that whispers in your yeah. ear that you might still be lost to Christ, even though he has redeemed you, you know. Um, but it's, it's easy for us to say that. At, at the time, the, it, because of various reasons, it wasn't seen so clearly. And, and one of the main problems was the whole development of the idea of penance and a penitential theology. And, of course, the idea of penance was meant to be, you know, people sort of... Um, trying here and now to, to do something good for something bad they had done. And then, of course, this becomes applied to theology and it becomes applied to your relationship with God and so on. And, and Irish penitential theology was particularly bad. Irish penitential theology took the concept even further with huge rule books uh, of how to deal with penance. And you can see echoes of that in the Dominion's Life of Columba. Uh, on, on various penalties that were given to people. So the idea that, yes, Christ has released me from Satan's grip, but on this journey, and especially this transition through the air from earth to heaven, might, I might still be recaptured if my life is not holy enough, if I have not kept my life holy enough. We'd want to say, Brother Columba, no, you're saved by God's grace alone, through Christ alone. Um, but of course, you know, um, Satan, the deceiver, has always tried to confuse Christians on that one. Yeah, very, very much. And and yet, what a glorious assurance the the fullness of Christ's work brings. Uh, that, that you just said something that if you could go back fifteen hundred years, you would love to encourage your brother with. Uh, even the way you talked about him there, you have such a clear admiration, sense of connection to this man. In the past, and I think that's a great model for us to see uh, these uh, heroes and men and women of the past with faith in Christ as brothers and sisters. Uh, the, the, the conversation goes two-way. Having spent so much time uh, thinking about Columba and especially his theology, what do you think he has to teach us today that maybe we've become uh, less aware of in 2021 uh, as we live in a secular society increasingly what do you think Columba would want to say to the modern church yeah that, that, that's a good question before I answer it um and you know just reflecting on the fact of um you know we have to try and I think use these people in the past as brothers and sisters that speak to us um I remember when I went to Malawi to teach in the theological college Many of my students came from very rural villages, you know, they, they were tremendous because all the classes were in English and so on, and um, which was sometimes their third language. And they'd go into the library and they'd see these thousands of books and they'd think, what do we do with them? And I used to say to them, well, these aren't books, these, these are people. They're your brothers and sisters in Christ and they've got something to say on John's gospel here, or somebody got somebody to say in the Psalms. So they're all people who are just wanting to speak to you. And I think when you look at historical figures, then 
you know, we can do that with them as well. Um, I think that in terms of Columba for today, I think one of the main things is that he reminds us that Christians have been here before. Because like us today, he had to evangelize in a culture with non-Christian presuppositions. Mm -hmm. Now, we might think, well, it was okay for him because then he lived in a believing culture, whereas nowadays we live in a non-believing culture. But I think that when we actually get down to the root of the matter, any culture with non-Christian presuppositions, whether it's an atheistic culture or one that has a vague belief in the divine, there's actually not much difference at all. So, so Columbus says to us, Luke, I went to a place where people didn't know about Christ at all, basically, and I proclaimed the gospel, I heralded Christ, I lifted up his name, and in the way that he would express it, Satan fled. Um, so he wasn't daunted by the culture that he had to address because he had confidence in mission because for him, everything was rooted in the victory of Christ. And his task was simply allowing Christ's victory to work itself out in communities and in the lives of individuals. And I think um, one of the things that, that happened was that part of the method of the Irish church and, and the other churches as well on continental Europe was to establish pockets of local believers living as Christian communities. And in living like that, in heralding Christ, in lifting up Christ, they proclaimed Christ, and in proclaiming, they believed that the forces of evil retreated. Um, now, we might want to translate that into different language, different wording, but certainly I think that in essence, it has to be the same mechanism. Because the same reality, the ultimate victory of Christ manifesting itself in communities and in individuals has to be the kind of bottom line for, for mission, for evangelism and so on. Well, well, sir, thank you so much for your time. This has uh, been really, really helpful. Uh, I, I think you've uh, taken us not just into the story, but taken us into the thinking of the man and the heart that drove him. And it's been really uh, good just to get to know him more and we really appreciate all of the work uh, that you have done uh, to research and to write and to uh, be able to unfold a man like him to us so thank you so much for your time if you've been enjoying the saints and scholars podcast please uh, follow and subscribe uh, each week we seek to interview somebody to learn more about the history of christianity here on the island of ireland